Good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are doing well. We had some issues with the audio yesterday in our service. We have fixed those since then, so in the future we shouldn't have those same issues. But the audio was not um, usable for putting up on our podcast and app and stuff. And so to be honest with you, I was just going to skip this week and move on to whatever the Lord has next. And the Holy Spirit stopped me in my tracks this morning and just really pushed me to a place where I needed to get this re-recorded. And so I am re-recording this uh, message. I'm going to probably add a few things that I've seen even since yesterday, this morning in prayer. And hopefully you guys will track along with me. So if you weren't here at church, we missed you, but we're glad that you are tuning in and listening to this after the fact. And if you don't live in Columbia and you just listen to the podcast every week, we are glad that you are with us too. And uh, you can give if you want to bless the hand that's feeding you, so to speak. Um, (laughs) If you want to bless where you're kind of getting poured into, you can do so at dreamcolumbia.com slash give or on the app. And that would be a great blessing for us, for you. And the Lord is just doing some amazing things right now in the church. Okay. So today I want to I want to finish up talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I I did not come into this year with the thought that I'm going to do a teaching through the Sermon on the Mount as we've come to know it. Uh, it's just something the Lord has has pushed us into, really invited us into, and this is Jesus's first major message that we have recorded in the Gospels, and Jesus is setting a new paradigm. And so what I want to do before we get into the text is I want to go through and I want to explain a little bit of something that I explain periodically uh, here and there. And if you've, if you've been around or if you've heard stuff for a while from us, then you know this is something that we talk about a good bit. And the reason is, is because if you don't know the context of some of the stuff, not just some of the stuff, all the stuff that's written in Scripture, you're not going to know half of the story that's written in Scripture. And I think that's what's gotten us in trouble in the West. A lot of what's gotten us in trouble as it relates to how we understand God, how we understand what he was doing through Jesus, etc. The reason we get into left field or the reason we start chasing rabbits we were never designed to chase theologically and in our understanding is because we don't understand the context that this stuff was written in. So we'll take some of the stuff that Jesus said or Paul said or Peter said or Moses said, and we'll put that into our American Western context. And it's the same wording. So we're getting the same verses from Jesus or the same verses from Moses or the same verses for Paul. But when you put it in a different context, suddenly you have a completely different thing. And so that's what's gotten us in a lot of trouble. And so what the Lord is doing lately, especially in us, is he's, re- dis- he's allowing us to rediscover the context of a lot of this stuff so that we can get a full, glorious, amazing picture of what is going on in uh, not just Scripture, but in the world, in the cosmos. And so what I want to do is I want to start out and I want to talk about a little, I want to talk about Greek. I want to talk about philosophy and, uh, and I want to talk about how we should orient how we think based on what we know about God, not the other way around. So hopefully you guys are with us. I'm going to end up in Matthew 7. So if you are listening to this and you want to turn there, if you have an app that you use for the Bible, then you don't necessarily have to turn there, but I guess you have to load it. So anyway, here we go. 
I'm going to start with some stuff I've been writing and we'll, we'll get in there. The major difference between ancient understanding and modern Western understanding is not, from a root level, a theological difference. Theology, the study of God, okay? The major difference from a root level is philosophy or philosophical, which is the study of how we think. A difference in how we think, which will ultimately we're going to talk about today, and we talked about some last week, ophthalmos, the word for I in Greek, is the mind's eye. And it's not Illuminati or weird stuff, okay? It's, it's essentially the way you perceive, the way you think, okay? A difference in how we think will, of course, result in theological differences. So our study of God, which is theology, is supposed to inform our philosophy or how we think. Unfortunately, today, we make our philosophy inform our study of God. So how we view God submits to our way of thinking rather than our thinking submitting to a right view of God. This is a hurdle some of us still haven't gotten over. Because for decades, we've been taught about how God fits into a Greek-inspired American philosophy or way of thinking. But in order to see God for who he really is, and the cosmos and you and I for what we and it really is, we have to flip the script. Your way of thinking should never be concrete and unchanging. It must be pliable and willing to change based on the dimension of the nature of God the Lord has us at. That's what repentance is. Repentance, metanoia in the Greek, is a constant willingness to change or mature how we think. So when Jesus comes and the first thing that John the Baptist preaches and the first thing that we see Jesus preaches is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the, the word repentance is metanoia. We, we've always heard, and this is all review if you've been around here for a while, we've always heard that metanoia or repentance is to change the way that you're walking, to change directions, which is absolutely true. However, uh, I, I, this is just an example. The, you know, when you were a kid, there's a temptation to take a fork and stick it into an electrical socket. Why? Because there's a hole in the electrical socket, and you have a fork, and that thing can go into the electrical socket. It just kind of makes sense. It's kind of fun see what happens. But what happens when you do that? You get shocked. You get electrocuted. Okay? And so you don't do that anymore. Why? Because you've done it, and you felt the pain from doing that, and therefore you don't want that pain anymore. But once you're older, it's not the pain that informs your decision to not put a fork into an electrical socket. It's your maturity and how you think that knows a fork is not designed to go into an electrical socket, and that's why I'm not going to do it. Of course, it will produce pain, but the reason I'm not doing it is not because uh, it's going to produce pain and there's some innate understanding in me that wants to put a fork in an electrical socket. The reason I'm not going to do that is because my thinking has matured to the point where I understand that's not designed for that. And so what, what metanoia, repentance, does is it comes in and it shifts how we think 
And because we perceive differently, and because we process differently, and because we have new minds, suddenly we're walking in a different direction. And not because the direction is uh, the right way to go, but because our minds have been so transformed that the natural direction we go in is now different. And if we're not careful, we'll confuse what I just said, okay? There's one way to go. There's one, let me say it like this. There's one way to live that's wrong, and then there's one way to live that's right. Repentance is not saying no, 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 no to the wrong way of living, and yes, 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 yes to the right way of living. Because that is, if you're having to say no constantly to the temptation to live the quote-unquote wrong way, then your mind hasn't changed. You're just saying no to something you still want, right? Repentance is not that. And even though that's what we've called holiness, our whole lives, I've been told holiness is saying no to the wrong things. No, holiness is you being so transformed into the image of the Son and so put back right again, so waken, uh, so awaken to your right mind that you start to walk naturally in the right way because you don't crave the wrong way anymore. So it's not that you're saying no to something that if you were being honest, you still crave. It's that your cravings on the inside have changed and now you long for what is right in the same way you used to long for what is wrong, even if you said no to it. So this is what metanoia is. It's a change in how we think. That's why, so Jesus is saying, change how you think, be redeemed on the heart level and on the mind level because the kingdom is here. Now, why does that make any sense? Because the kingdom will only, and I'm about to read this in Matthew 7, the kingdom will only be entered into. And I, and. I'm going to explain this in a minute. When he says entered into the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus came to bring into the earth. Mark, Luke, and John call it the kingdom of God. And, and because Matthew was probably originally written in Hebrew, he uses a more Hebraic way of saying the kingdom of God by saying the kingdom of heaven. They're talking about the same thing. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. Jesus also, right before Matthew 7, in Matthew 6, tells them, you pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is heaven? Heaven is the blueprint for what the earth is designed to look and be and feel and operate like. That's what it is. We look to heaven to see what this is supposed to be like. We don't look at heaven to say, thank God I'm getting out of this. But, but that requires a change in how we think. Okay, so for example, Greek thinking was all about humans being at the center of the story and primarily a fascination with the afterlife. It's going to start sounding very familiar. That's where you get the quote from Pythagoras that says, man is the measure of all things. We talked about that a few weeks ago. This is Greek thinking. Man is the measure of all things. Okay? Um, that's where you also get the teaching from Plato and those after Plato, such as Plato's allegory of the cave. 
And I played this in the servant in the service yesterday. If you want to, just go YouTube uh, allegory of the cave and look up the little claymation one. And um, and there's a reading in a claymation video of Plato's allegory of the cave. But this is where you get this from, where the people are taught that this life is nothing but a blurry shadow. And the goal and purpose of this life is to get away from the material world and float into a disembodied spirit within eternal bliss. And by the way, the greatest influence on the early church negatively was Platonism. Platonism is using Platonic philosophy, Plato philosophy, to think through theology. It's taking ideas from people like Plato and making God answer the ideas from Plato, okay? This is huge. N.T. Wright does some amazing work on explaining this way better than me in his book, uh, Surprised by Hope. If you haven't read that, I would highly recommend that be the next book you read. It's amazing. Um, But the, the negative influence on the early church was there was a large amount of people that wanted to take their way of thinking, which was influenced by Plato and other philosophers in Greece, who, by the way, didn't believe in God, okay, who were not followers of Yahweh, that wanted to take thinking that they had grown up with and marry it to a new relationship that they now have access to with God through Jesus. And it's called, historians call it Platonism. And so what we have in the church today is a highly influenced Greek society, which is American, if you, America, if you don't know that, is, is highly, highly influenced by Greek um, thinking and Greek economics and Greek politics. So we've taken uh, our way of thinking that we inherited from a Western lens, and we've tried to marry that with God and Jesus and the gospel and life and et cetera. And, and that's why we are in some of the junk that we're in. It's because our way of thinking was never designed to inform how we view God. Our view of God was 100% of the time supposed to inform how we think. And if we could shift that narrative, it would, A, challenge us to rethink everything we thought we were sure of and B, make us sure of all the things we were designed to be sure of. Most American, and by the way, if you go back and watch the allegory of the cave, you'll see some of these, I mean, just, just go back. Plato talks about how there are, uh, pri- in this life, there, people are prisoners that are chained up in a cave. Does that sound familiar? Well, brother, I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, hanging on until the Lord calls me home. That's called being a prisoner in a cave, right? And, they, and the Greek philosophers believed that there were certain people who were enlightened, which, of course, the philosophers were some of those. Um, it was very, most of the people weren't enlightened, but there were some people who were enlightened and understood how things worked. And those people in this allegory, okay, it's just, it's just a symbol, symbolic story, kind of a parable, I guess you would say, type thing. Um, those people, the enlightened ones, got to leave the cave and see things for what they really are. But when they came back to try to tell the other people in the cave what was going on in the real world, what was real, all the people in the cave could ever hear was just mumbling and shadows. 
So the goal in life was to be enlightened and ultimately to, to make it into eternal bliss, the afterlife. So go back and watch that. And as you think through that allegory, I want you to see, make the connections between Western American church and Plato. They're un, it's unbelievable, right? So most American churches today are usually unknowingly a form of Platonism. Most don't know that. If you go to any church today and say, um, a, lot of our, a lot of the beliefs that you guys believe in are really platonic, they would have no clue what you're talking about. And so I don't blame them because all they're doing is preaching what they've been told, but there is a root system underneath the American church that balks at revelations from God, not because they're wrong, but because they don't fit our way of thinking. This is why I'm teaching this. I, I don't have a gigantic following of church leaders that listen to this. I'm not even teaching them to begin with. I'm teaching to the flock that I've been called to shepherd. But for you to understand what the Lord is doing here, the first thing you've got to do is understand what this is not. And so that's why I teach this all the time. Because if not, you'll bump into some of these things that go against what is the norm in the American church. And if we understand what reality is for the church, that'll be no issue for us. If we don't understand that, it'll seem like we're going against the grain just to go against the grain, and that's not the case at all. So this is why I'm teaching this. Let me grab a, a drink, and I'll keep going. Okay, excuse me for that. <clears throat> so most American churches today, usually unknowingly, are a form of Platonism. For example, what is the aim of almost any church on any given week? And this is not a shot. I just, just want us to see this. It's figuring out what people like, what music they listen to, how long they like their sermons, what programs they like, etc. I had a lady come to me one time that uh, they, they came to our church for a few weeks. And, uh, and she came to me and she said, you know, I really, really love what the Lord is doing here. And I was like, amazing, love it, glad you guys are here. And she said, but uh, you, go, you guys don't have the programs that the, uh, and I won't mention what denomination, but the certain denomination church down the street um, have, and so we're actually going to go there. And, and she made the comment even, she said, I don't agree with most of what they teach, but I just want my kids to be in their programs. So, so that, that right there is an insight. What, what, it, what does Protagoras say in Greek? Man is the measure of all things, right? So on any given Sunday, what is our aim? Our aim, not our aim, but typically in the American church, the aim is what do people like? What music do people listen to? How long do they like their sermons? What programs do they like, etc.? And what do we primarily teach? How to be happy, how to have joy, how to have hope, how God wants to use you to be famous and important, your assignment, your purpose, your calling, etc. Do you, do you notice something about every single thing that I just said? I mean, just think for a minute. Do you notice anything that's interesting about every single thing that I just said? Well, if you were paying attention, Man is at the center of all of it. At the center of everything I just said is man. At no point, at no point do we sit around and say, what does God want? 
because we know if we began to discover what God wants, it would probably go against what man wants. And if it goes against what man wants, people will leave. And if people leave because we go after what God wants, then guess what? They needed to. And we've got to settle that in our hearts. So it's not, it's not what does God want. It's always what do people want. And we'll submit to how we bring God into the story to their desires and palates. That is literally man being the measure of all things. Another example. When I say the words, and this is just a little list I compiled just quickly. When I say the words lost, sin, saved, born again, and judgment, what do you, by default, think in terms of? You think in terms of the afterlife. And none of those words, when they were originally spoken, had connotations of the afterlife. None of them. So it's, it's not because you got that philosophy or that way of thinking from Scripture, but because you and I inherited an American Greek philosophy and processed Scripture through our predetermined mindsets. Most of our services are built on the moment when people repeat a prayer so they can go to heaven. Ironically, if you read the New Testament, there is not one place in the New Testament where somebody repeats a prayer to go to heaven and not one place that says your salvation is primarily about you dying and going to heaven. In fact, we have more verses that talk about if you believe you'll never die, then we have about, brother, if you'll repeat this prayer and believe, then when you, it's going, you're going to suffer. This life's going to be hard. But guess what? When you die, you get to float to heaven. That verse doesn't exist. Yet that is the moment that every service that we do hinges on. We could care less about heaven coming into the globe because you and I were taught the globe is evil, the material world is evil, and all we're called to do is sit around and go home in the morning. But when morning came and he didn't come rapture us away, what happened? We didn't know what to do because all we were taught was to sit around and wait until he returns to snatch us away. The problem is, is what Jesus actually taught was for us to pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know where we get the first Thessalonians rapture, quote unquote rapture verse that people wrongly translate as the rapture verse? We get that because and the, the reason Paul wrote the letter to the Thessalonians is because they had sat around on their behinds doing nothing thinking the return of Christ was imminent. Hello? And so Paul writes to tell them, you've got to do something. And he uses, and, and again, and I say this because you're going to process what I just said as works-based gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the difference between being lazy and sitting around and doing nothing, thinking he's going to snatch you away, and you living your life. That's Zoe life, okay? That's what I'm talking about. So Paul writes it, and he says that the, he, he likens the return of Christ to the return, if you knew the context, to the return of an emperor, um, or let's say a Caesar, who would come in after an earthquake, typically an earthquake, destroyed a city. So after an earthquake would destroy a city, 
the Caesar, the leader, would come in, he would assess the damage, he would allot them an amount of money to repair the city, and the only caveat was you have to build it back better than it was before. And after a certain amount of time, parousia, this is, where, this is the Greek word Paul uses for, um, for coming again. After a set amount of time, he would come back, he would come again for a second coming, and all the people would hear a trumpet blast. They would leave the city. They would go meet the leader outside of the city, and together, hand in hand, they would walk into the city to show the leader that had allotted them the amount of money to build back as it should have been what they did with what they were given. Hello? So he's not writing the First Thessalonians 4 and the whole rest of the book to tell them that, you know, you better get ready because you're going to get raptured. One The word rapture is not in the Bible. And in fact, if you went back 300 years, because it's a brand new concept, it's only a, a maybe a couple hundred years old. That's it. Um, actually, a little less than that. So if you go back 300 years, guess what? And you start talking about rapture, they're gonna, anybody across the world is going to look at you like you got three heads. What are you talking about? And that has been the belief that the church in America primarily has hinged everything on. Luckily, that's ending because people are starting to study <laughs> and, and starting to uh, change how they think. But my point is, is that this, this is exactly what we were called to view the globe as. Not as a place where we sit around and wait to get snatched away from, but a place that we have been given life to the full so that, as Paul says in Romans 8, as all of creation stands on tiptoe, waiting, yearning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of Yahweh so that with us it might taste freedom from decay, as we come back to life, as we are awakened to our Zoe original identity reality, so is the creation. When John talks about, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the word new there is not neos, which is new in age, it's kainos, which is restored to new quality. And it's the same word used for the new wineskin when it talks about you can't pour new wine into an old wineskin, but new wine is only poured into a new wineskin. The wineskin, if you know context or if you've listened to this, um, listen to us at any point in time, the wineskin is not a new wineskin. The wineskin has been restored to new quality. They would literally take old, dried-out wineskins, baptize them in hot oil, massage the oil into it until it got its pliability back, and then they would pour new wine back into it so it could stretch it. So this is the same thing, that Yahweh is coming into the globe by way of Jesus, and now by way of you and I who are followers of Jesus, he's coming into the globe to not destroy it, but to restore it to how it was before it lost its pliability. All right, all right. So most of our service are... are most of our services hinge on that moment. But Jesus himself even said that the aim of heaven is here where you are now. This is your kingdom come on earth. You are to pray, heaven invade where I am, 
not heaven take me away from where I am. That, that's why we're having no impact on the cosmos. We're trying to escape the very creation that we were called to rule. So we made verses like, be in the world but not of the world, talk about surviving the world until we're called home. But this is home. It doesn't feel like home because we've let home erode. Um, we've let home erode thinking that God was going to blow it up anyway. Most evangelical Americans are oblivious to new creation and resurrection because it does not fit our Platonism. If you ask people today, just walk down the street and find anybody in the South that says they're a Christian, and you ask them, what is eternity going to be like? They'll all tell you heaven. Uh, you, you would be hard-pressed to find somebody that will tell you resurrection and new creation, yet that is the very thing that the Bible in the New Testament and, if I could prove it to you, in the Old Testament points to. It's, it's not you dying and going to heaven, even though, listen, when you die, you'll be with Jesus. That's not a question. But that's not the finish. That's not the end. The end is Jesus returning, not to snatch away, but to establish his rule in the kingdom that we have helped bring in by way of how we live our lives. To establish a rule, and the secondary consequence of him establishing that rule is every dead thing coming back to life, primarily resurrection in our mortal bodies, or what were mortal bodies that are now immortal. Okay? John finishes Revelation with that view of new creation, where you and I are raised in our bodies to live with Christ forever in a kingdom where the gates are always open. God is setting up his kingdom here. That's why, again, the New Testament from start to finish is speaking of here and now realities. Salvation, the Greek word sozo, is freedom from oppression Oppression of what? Lost mindsets relating to who we are here and now so that we can, once we have been set free from those lost mindsets by way of sozo, salvation, freedom from oppression, so that we can have zoe, life to the full, here and now. So we must reorient our thinking to be a consequence of our theology, not our theology a consequence of how we think. I'm starting out today like this because some of us won't see the truth in the Sermon on the Mount or anything else because a lot of the truth is different than how we have been trained to think. And the question that I want each of you to begin to ponder is this. If some of you discovered, or excuse me, let me, re, let me rephrase that. If something you discovered to be true about God, unequivocally true about God, went against your current way of thinking, would you be okay with it and shift your thinking to submit to what you have discovered to be true about God? Or would you reject a revelation of and from God because your way of thinking made it illegal? Let me say it like this. 
if God comes to you and shows you a piece of his nature that is different than how you thought his nature was, are you willing to submit now to change your thinking to this view of God that he has allowed us to have? Or are we going to reject that unequivocally proven character and nature of God in this example because it does not fit how we have thought and how we've been trained to thought and how we think? This is exactly what Jesus is doing in his teaching. He is the word of God, the logos of God. So he's saying, for example, in, when he talks about the difference between what you heard and what was actually supposed to be heard um, when he goes through the law. He, for example, he's saying, you heard it taught like this, but I'm telling you to think about what you heard like this. It's exactly what Jesus is doing. There, there, when, when the 5,000 plus all the women and children, so possibly some scholars believe it could have been up to 50,000 people, probably um, more accurately is probably somewhere around fifteen or 20,000, but that's still a lot of people. So let's say fifteen or 20,000 people um, are fed in the, in the uh, multiplication of the bread and the fish, the loaves and the fish. The next day they come to Jesus so that they can be fed again. And Jesus says, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm, this is Josh translation. I'm glad you guys are here. Let's eat. Eat my flesh and drink my blood is the meal today. And do you know what they say? They look around to each other and say, does this man expect us to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And they leave. He turns to the 12. Okay, so listen, 20,000 people turn their backs and leave. He looks to the 12 and says, are y'all going to leave too? And their response was, where else would we go? Your words hold the key to eternal life. So Jesus says the same thing to both groups. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. The majority of them, which you're about to see about the, the narrow and the broad gates, I'm about to read. The majority of them say this guy's lost his mind and leave. What Jesus just said does not fit their way of thinking, and so they reject it. For the 12, in that moment, they change how they think to fit this new revelation of consumption. In one moment, Jesus says, you've gone from spectating to consuming. And the 20,000 people say, this, this guy's lost his mind. The 12 say, praise God, we're in a new dimension. And the difference is not the word. The difference is not the theology. The difference is how willing are we to submit how we think and our traditions and how we have been raised? How willing are we to submit that to what is actually true and from God? True about and from God. So, all that being said, that's a little intro for you. Let's go to Matthew 7. And I'm going to just walk you through Matthew 7. Um, I'm going to point out what a lot of this Greek stuff is saying because it's really important to get to the to the root of what Jesus is saying and then we'll be done. Here we go. Let me start out actually I'm going to read the last two verses and then I'm going to back up, okay? 
Because we have made the Sermon on the Mount a sermon that is separating believers and not believers in Christianity. And point number one, Christianity did not exist when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if I could prove it to you, if I, if I really could prove it to you, um, Jesus never gave them a religion of Christianity. The early church never gave themselves a religion of Christianity. It was the people of Antioch who weren't even in the church that gave them the label of a religion, Christianity. So was Jesus a Christian? Absolutely not. Were the early church Christians? Absolutely not. They were sons and daughters of God. And Damon Thompson said this recently, and I loved it. He said, Jesus came to obliterate religion, not create a new religion. He came to get rid of it. So last night, I'm in prayer, and this is why I'm recording this today. This is brand new. I didn't, I didn't say this yesterday. So last night, I'm in prayer, and the Lord begins to whisper to me and say, when you say the phrase, the spirit of religion, what are you talking about? And I said, well, of course, I'm talking about the religious Pharisee spirit, the law spirit. And Jesus said, yes, that's part of it. That's part of it. And I said, well, what part am I missing? And he said, the same religious spirit that creates a religious denominational type system in Christianity is the same religious spirit that reigns in Muslims, in Islam, in Hinduism, and in all the other religions. It's the same religious spirit that if you do this, you get this. If you act like this, you'll get this. If you do this, then you'll be this. It's the same religious spirit. Jesus did not come to create a competing religion to compete with the world religions. That's why Christianity spread, quote-unquote Christianity, spread so quickly within so few years. It's because they weren't telling people to join a new religion. They were telling people you can finally be set free from religion. So this, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. So let me read Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and then we're going to back up and walk through Matthew 7. Here we go. When Jesus had finished saying these things, so his sermon's over at this point, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because, here we go, he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon separating two groups of people in or not in a specific religion, in this case called Christianity. The Sermon on the Mount primarily was aimed at the religious spirit that had infiltrated the people of God. So the primary target in all of this is not the adulterous and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people who were awful. The primary aim was the pretender that primarily resided in the religious spirit. And that's exactly why at the end, it's not a random thing that they say, man, this guy teaches different than our religious teachers. No, 
the, the, the difference between Jesus' teaching and the religious teacher's teaching is on the forefront of their mind because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about is the difference between the kingdom and how we should proceed in this thing and how we have been taught we should think about this thing. So with all that in mind, let me, let me start at verse 1 and, uh, and we'll walk through that. But I want you to keep that in mind. Whenever I read something and the first thing that happens within you is you start to think about how this is talking about the person down the street that you don't like and there you go, it's a jab at him. I want you to remember this is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is first getting to the mindset that said who you are is what you have done. That's what this entire sermon is about. It's not about you doing other things and doing better things. It's about you stopping right in your tracks where you have found your identity in what you do. Here we go. Do not judge. The Greek word right there is krino, and it means to separate or distinguish by determining guilt. That's what that word means. Jesus is saying, do not judge. Well, who is he talking to? He's talking to those who have separated or distinguished people based on who they thought was guilty and who was not, which would be the, the religious leaders. All right, I'm going to try not to stop every, every couple of words. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you used, it will you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All right, let me stop right there, okay? A very familiar passage. And what we have always said about this is Jesus is telling you to not judge other people around you when you got junk in your life that needs to be judged just as much, if not more, than theirs. So deal with your junk, and then you can go deal with their junk. And, and that, that's fine, and that works. That's just not what Jesus is talking about. So let me help you. The word measure, okay, with the measure you used, it will be measured to you, is metria, and it means to measure out or estimate, okay? Literally, it means to judge who somebody is based on whatever your form of measurement is, whatever your measuring stick is. So Jesus is saying, I want you to understand religiously, because remember, they were judging people under the, under the mask that we're about to see that they didn't need to be judged, that they were perfect, that they were good. They followed this law to a T, which they didn't. Their mask did, what people saw did. Who they really are did not. But, G, but the, the religious leaders are measuring people and distinguishing judges, crino, people, based on what they see and compare to their own mask. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. How you judge them, how you separate them, will determine how you are separated. Not separated from God, but separated from the mask. Okay. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in yours? The word speck there is the Greek word karphos, and it means dry stalk, chip, or chaff. 
Matthew 3, 12. Let me just read this real quick just to give you a little reminder, okay? His winnowing fork, John says, uh, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Remember I taught this, that the wheat and the chaff are, the, are from the same stalk. They grow together. They're from the same thing. But they get thrown into the wind. This is what the farmers would have done. Thrown them into the wind. What does John say? He's coming to baptize you in the Holy Spirit or wind. That's what the Greek word is. And fire. So thrown up into the wind. And what would happen is, is the chaff would separate in the wind from the wheat. And they would take the wheat, which is the good part, and they would store that away. And then they would take the chaff and they would burn it up because it was useless. And Jesus is saying, or John is saying, that Jesus is coming to separate the chaff within you from the wheat. He's coming to separate the useless parts within you from the pure and useful parts within you, which is the lost mindset or the mask and who you really are. He's coming to separate those. And what is he going to do with the mask? What is he going to do with the chaff? He's going to burn it in unquenchable fire. What does that mean? He's going to burn it up in such a way that you can't go retrieve it again. He's going to remove you from the pretender within you, and then he's going to so eliminate the pretender within you that you'll never feel the urge to go pretend again. Change how you think. He's going to so radically change your mindset that you're going to never have an urge to go back to the pretender again. That's what uh, spec means. The word plank is the Greek word dokos, and it means beam of timber on which the whole house rests. Here's what Help's Word Studies says. Help says, this is the complete obstruction of vision. If speck is the chaff, if the speck in your brother's eye is the chaff, what does that mean? That means you're judging the thing that Yahweh has come to take care of already. He's coming to separate the wheat and the chaff. But the plank is different than the chaff, than the speck. The plank is a complete obstruction of vision. It's the beam on which your entire house rests. It's your identity. Don't judge the thing, the chaff in your brother that Yahweh's coming to deal with anyway and pay no attention to the complete obstruction of who you really are within yourself. Don't look at the speck in your brother's eye and call him a pretender when everything about who you are is a pretender. You go deal with who you really are first, and then by way of you knowing who you really are and coming alive in who you really are, you might give permission for your brother to become who he really is and be the exact agent that Yahweh uses to remove the chaff from the wheat within your brother. It's much better news. The word eye is the word ophthalmos or the mind's eye. I talked about that in the beginning. It's how you think or how you perceive, okay? It's your way of thinking. It's the same word that is used in Matthew 6, 22 through 24, when Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body and talks about light and darkness. If you missed that last week, go back and check that out. I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time reviewing that today because i got some other stuff I want to get to. Verse 5, the word hypocrite is, hypo, uh, excuse me, 
Hypocrites. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my Greek good, so y'all excuse me a little bit. Hypocrites, and it means actor, pretender, or stage player. It comes from two words, hypo, meaning under, and krino, which is the word that we've studied in verse 1 when it says do not judge. It's the word for judge, okay? So a hypocrite, hypocrino, is literally under judge. Under judge. This is what helps word study says about this. Help says this is hypocrites uh, or hypocrite is an actor under a mask. Excuse me, it's an actor acting under a mask. Who are the hypocrites? The ones who have the plank in their eyes, or the ones who have a complete obstruction of who they really are, their identity. So a hypocrite in Greek is someone determining people's guilt while hiding under a mask of guiltlessness. So who can we start to see Jesus is now primarily addressing? He's primarily now addressing the teachers of the law and the religious leaders and the religious spirit within anybody who has followed the religious teachers of the law. He's saying... Don't point out the thing, the chaff, I'm removing from someone in order to determine their guilt while having the entirety of your identity blinded by a pretending religious mask. That's exactly what he's talking about here. Works-based gospel only benefits those behind a mask because it gives you the ability to do something to make you seem like something. Works-based gospel is only appealing to people who are hiding behind a mask. If, if you are solidified in who you really are, the works-based gospel isn't even appealing. Because you know who you are. The works-based gospel is only appealing to those who have their identity in what they do, which is the mask. The ones who want people to think that they are something. That's so. So you can go. Uh, you know, you can go uh, feed feed somebody at a homeless shelter or pay for somebody's groceries or whatever, and you're posting it on Facebook so that everybody can see. Now, why on earth would you do that unless you needed people to see what you have done in order to portray an image of something that you are? That if we're all being real under the mask, you really are not. And Yahweh does not want us to have polished masks. Masks. Yahweh wants us to take off the mask and be who we really are, even if who we really are in the beginning is way different than the mask that we have portrayed. Because everything Ephesians says that is brought to the light is turned into truth. So when you remove the mask, it doesn't matter how impoverished your identity or what you think your identity is behind the mask, once that is brought out into the light, Yahweh begins the process of bringing you into truth. So this is what he's teaching. Jesus and the apostles didn't need or struggle with works-based theology because they knew who they were and they hid behind no mask. All right. 
Verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, but if you just Google this verse, it is astonishing. The consistent translate, or not translation, uh, the consistent understanding that people think they have about this verse is, is astonishing. If you read this, if you Google it, almost every single time you will find somebody saying, Jesus here is telling you not to give the gospel to people who aren't going to receive it. And the people who won't receive it are the dogs and the pigs. No, no, no. This is Jesus saying, do not try to receive a sacred pearl of revelation from God while your identity is still a dog or a pig. Because if you do that, the pretender within you will trample that revelation under its feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, where do we get language like this? Oh, yeah, it's the wineskin. He does not pour new wine into an old wineskin. Why? Because if he did, the wineskin would burst and the wine would be ruined. If you try to receive new wine while your wineskin is still dried out and unable to stretch, it will tear you, literally, your wineskin, tear it to pieces. This is what Jesus is talking about. Don't give dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is what he's talking about. He's saying you need to fix the identity of what's receiving the pearl or what's receiving what is sacred or what's receiving the new wine, and then you'll be able to receive it and contain it and use it for what it's designed to be used for. Verse 7, I won't spend too much time on this. Uh, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, the word evil is paneros, which is the works-based religious system. If you want to go back last week, I explained that a lot more. So when we read the word evil, we're thinking of you know people who live a certain lifestyle. No, when Jesus speaks of evil, he uses the word paneros, which means to labor or toil. He's talking about people who find their identity in works, which is evil. <laughs> okay? Uh, if you then, though you are that, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Man, 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 man. He's, 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 man, how far, how far do I go in this? Jesus here is saying, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, I want you to think, I want you to think for a minute. What were the Jews waiting for? Let me say it like this. What were the Jews asking God for? A Messiah who was going to do what? Restore the kingdom of Israel. The religious leaders had taught the people to pray that God would send his Messiah to restore the kingdom of Israel. And God sent his Messiah to restore a kingdom but it wasn't just a kingdom 
that David built, he sent his Messiah to restore the kingdom that Yahweh built in the garden. Did you hear this? Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will give him a snake? You wouldn't do that. But you're, you're hearing my words and you're going, Jesus says, and you're going to hear my words and you're going to think you asked God for Israel to be restored and what you got in response was a bunch of nonsense that went against everything that you thought. I, I want you to hear this. If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. He says, you who are in that impoverished mindset know how to give good gifts to your children. If you know how to give good gifts to your children and you don't even know who you are, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's saying, you ask for something and Yahweh responded and gave you that something and so much more. He's not just going to restore the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Israel. He's going to restore a kingdom in which Zion becomes the home of all nations and all people. But if you're not careful, you're going to see religious mindset. You're going to see how Yahweh has answered your prayer as him giving you a stone when you ask for bread and him giving you a snake when you ask for fish. What do they tell Jesus? What do they tell Jesus? They say when Jesus is casting out demons, right? Who the, what is the devil personified as? A snake uh, in the garden. So uh, when Jesus is casting out demons, they say Jesus is casting out demons by Satan. That Jesus was demonic in what he was doing. They called him a snake. Do, do you see this language? Okay. If you ask for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you wouldn't give a snake when your son asked for a fish, a fish is something you consume and eat. A snake is something that will kill you. You asked Yahweh for something that would bring you back to nourishment and health, the kingdom of Israel. And you're processing how Yahweh answered by way of the son as him responding by giving you a snake or something that's going to destroy the kingdom of Israel. And if you're not careful, you're going to miss it. He says, that's not who the father is. If you, in your impoverished mindsets, know how to give your sons good gifts when they ask, how much more does Yahweh give you good gifts when you ask? Man, I could spend so much time going into that, and I might coming up soon. But, uh, but y'all definitely take that and pray over that and, and go deeper into that. That's where the invitation to ask and seek and knock comes from. Is, is, is you need to keep asking and seeking and knocking because Yahweh is opening something up in the earth by way of the Son that is not just everything you've been praying for. It's more than everything you've been praying for. Paul says it like this. He's able to do immeasurably more than everything you ask or imagine. So, verse 12, In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In everything, you are to climb into the, the, the reality of the person that you are casting judgment on, and you are to treat them 
as you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes. Remember what Jesus just taught. He said, you heard it said, it's just, I'm going to just give one example because I don't want to go too deep into this. You have heard that it was said to, to the people on goat, you shall not murder. And anybody who murders will be subject to judgment. What does he say in verse? Do not judge or you will be judged. In the same way that you judge, it will be measured to you in judgment. Okay? Do not judge. You've heard it said long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders uh, will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Do to others as you have them do unto you. What does he do? Before he gets to this verse that talks about treating people like you would want to be treated, he puts everybody on the same playing field. The religious leaders may not have ever murdered anybody physically, but they have been angry. And Jesus says, if you've ever been angry, you're subject to the same judgment as the person who has physically murdered someone. They would go to somebody who has murdered someone and do what the law prescribed. Judge them. Jesus is saying, in order for you to do to others as you would have them do to you, the first thing you've got to understand is you and them are the same. If you remove the mask, the same root that caused them to act out in murder is the exact same root that caused you to live in a state of anger. So he's saying, you're subject to the same judgment even though you've never on the outside murdered or acted out on it, the reality of your identity is subject to the same thing as you're casting on those who have acted out on it. So when he says, so in everything do to others as you would have them do unto you, he's saying you need to start getting on the level of those that you have cast judgment on from a higher place because your mask is more polished than theirs. And you need to start understanding that you and them in this new humanity, Paul calls it in Ephesians, in this new creation and in this kingdom reality, y'all are the same. That sums up the law and the prophets. Huh? Right? They're saying, nope. No, 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 no. The law says we're to murder people. Or excuse me, we're to judge people who murder. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you a reality that is going to be so full of the love of God, that's going to be so full of a grace that passes, or a, a, a peace that passes all understanding, and a grace that covers every single detail of every single false and wrong identity and mindset. I'm bringing you such a kingdom that you and the person that you used to judge are on the same level. And if you would understand it correctly, if that's how you would have seen the law, and if that's how you would have processed the prophets, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in now. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I think we could take a huge dose of this today. Huge dose of this. Some, some of you will get on Facebook and trash other people who have different views than you on both sides of the aisle. It's, it's, it's easy to say, do to others as you would have them do unto you, if you want people to treat you differently. It's very difficult if it requires you to treat somebody else differently that you don't want to treat any differently. 
And that, the, the second thing I just said, that's the religious spirit. The first, when you want people to treat you like you deserve to be treated, that's a cry of oppression. And God, in the Old Testament, over and over and over in Exodus, says he answers the cry of the oppressed. oppressed. That's amazing. But the second, when you reject due to others as you would have them do unto you, King James, and you don't necessarily, you kind of glaze over that when it's you who needs to treat somebody else differently, that's the religious spirit. And that's the very spirit that Jesus came after. The religious ones did not want to look at the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the adulterous people and say, you and me, we're actually on the same level. Let's do this thing called life together. Let's do this thing called the kingdom together. They didn't want to do that. But you better believe the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the adulterous people, etc., when they heard, do to others as you would have them do unto you, were cheering because they were the ones that were getting treated wrongly. The religious ones were the ones who were treating people wrongly. And Yahweh is addressing not necessarily the oppressed in this moment, although that is included. He's addressing the spirit that did not want to treat people like they deserve to be treated. And I'm, I'm speaking this to some, to some of you right now that are listening to this. You, you have amen this verse before because people have mistreated you, but you, maybe currently, or at least in the past, or maybe in the future, are mistreating people that this verse is calling you to a place of changing how you think. Repentance. All right. That was a tangent I did not get in. See, this is brand new stuff, exclusive podcast content, right? We should charge for this. I'm just joking. Uh, Verse 13, verse 13. I'm I'm almost there. Uh, He says, now this is, again, all very familiar, but we're going to put this in context. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So watch out for false prophets. Verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. But their fruit you will rec- by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Let me just finish it out. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform any miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. We have taken all of everything I just read and made it about believers and unbelievers and people who are Christians and people who are not Christians. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about true and false prophets who would be the teachers of the religious system. Enter through the narrow gate. In the Greek, the language right here used for narrow and small is related to the language of persecution. Okay, The religious leaders were not persecuted because they were on the road that everybody was on. They were doing the things that the people wanted, that the Romans wanted. They, they, were, they were complying, 
and subjecting their religion to what the people wanted. That's the broad way. That's the broad road, and it leads to destruction. Destruction of what? Destruction of reality. Destruction of the creation. Destruction of the, the, the identity of the children of God. And many go through that. Why? Because it don't cost you a thing. Look at the church today in America. How many people are doing the Christian religion thing and they show up on a Sunday sometimes and sometimes they'll show up during the week, maybe, sometimes, and they're tithing 1% if that and they're throwing a few dollars at it and they're reading their Bible every now and then, mostly the verse of the day. They'll pull it up, read the verse of the day and go about their day. They're not praying. They're not, fast, they're not doing any of that. They're not in community. They, they absolutely aren't submitted to a spiritual father or mother. None of it. They'll show up halfway through worship. They'll sit through a 20-minute message and go to Cracker Barrel and feel better about themselves during the week. That's most of the American church. That's the broad way. That's the broad way. It doesn't require you to do anything. It doesn't require you to lay down your life to find it. It doesn't require you to um, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things be added to you. It doesn't require you to, um, lay, to, to lay down your dreams and your goals and your what you think is your purpose in order to receive his dreams and goals and purpose, etc. It doesn't require you to do anything. So that's the broad road that everybody is going down. But the small and the narrow Gaten Road is the one that is laden with persecution, with laying down your life, with carrying your cross, with going the way of Jesus. I mean, what were the early church marked by? They were marked by being pulled apart by horses, getting their heads chopped off, being boiled in boiling oil, being killed, being slaughtered, being slandered, being stolen from, being beaten publicly being stoned, this is what the early church was marked by. That's the narrow and small way. And because that's the small gate and the narrow road, it's the road that leads to Zoe, life, that's here and now, life to the full. So that road is the way to get to how we were designed to live this life here and now, but only if you find it. Why? Because in order to get to life, You've got to go through a way that kills every inferior identity and mindset on the way. So it's the small way and it's the narrow gate, or excuse me, the small gate and the narrow way that is crushing and squeezing. What is it squeezing? It's squeezing out everything that is the chaff. It's squeezing out everything that doesn't belong, but that road on the other side leads to life. On the other side of that road is life. So there's a broad way that everybody in the religious system and in the culture is going down. And then there's the narrow way that the few are finding, but those few are inheriting life by way of that way. And what happens is, is as you and I begin to uh, live in the reality of Zoe life to the full that came by way of a small gate and a narrow road, suddenly that's going to be permission and an invitation for those on the broad way 
and the big, wide gate to find their way to the small and the narrow in order to find life. And, and a lot of what Jesus is talking about here is what's going to happen during the crucifixion and resurrection. <clears throat> He's not going to do this in a way that is widely and broadly palatable and accepted. He's going to accomplish life by way of a small way and a narrow way, a small gate and a narrow road which is exactly why right after this, Jesus warns them about false teachers, false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They are something on the outside that they are not on the inside. They, they are ones who come to you claiming to have gone through the small and narrow, but on the inside are still on the broad and wide. Okay, but what does he do? He, for the bad trees, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There you go, Matthew 3.12. He separates the chaff from the wheat and throws it into a fire. He cuts down the bad and throws it into the fire. Why? Because what remains is good. Uh, this is very similar language to John 15, the vine. And at the end of it, he says, every vine that does not bear fruit, and some, most of your Bibles say he, he cuts off and burns in fire. I'm not, I don't have it in front of me right now, but let, let, me, just, let me just make sure I'm not misquoting this. Because I'm, ta- I'm just taking this from memory right now, so y'all excuse me. Uh, John 15. I got a new Bible for Christmas, and I can't find all my marks. John 15. It says this. Um... Uh, I am the vine, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? Uh, If you do not remain in me, you're like the branch, here it is, that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire to burn. But the other language that is used here is not... And uh, if you look at Francois Dutois' translation, um, he even he says this. The language here, the altern, uh, alternative translation is not they're cut off and thrown into the fire. The alternative translation is that they're actually propped up so that they can actually bear fruit. Uh, uh, uh-oh. They're, they're withering, so he props them up in a way that they can bear fruit. This is very similar language to what he's talking about here in 15 through 20. But then in 21 through 23, he's talking about now uh, true and false disciples. And he says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord, that is a declaration of allegiance. These are people who are saying, I'm following him. He is my Lord. Okay, So not everyone who says they're with me are actually with me. Not everyone who says they're speaking and operating on behalf of me are actually speaking and operating on behalf of me. There's going to be many, many who prophesy in my name, cast out demons in my name, and perform miracles in my name that I'm going to say I never knew. And remember, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, what is he talking about? He's talking about the narrow and small way that leads to life. Because the kingdom of heaven is here and now language, not then and there. 
So I, from now on, when you see kingdom of heaven, I want you to think of here and now. He's, kingdom of heaven is the language Jesus uses for what this creation is supposed to be. Not uh, everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be able to enter into the small and narrow way that leads to life, which is the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be able to live the life that the kingdom offers. There's going to be many who say, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? What are all of those things? Works. There's going to be many people that say, did we not do this? Did we not do this? And did we not do this? And listen to his response. His response, and then I'm done. His response is, I will tell them when they say that, I never knew you. The word knew is gnosko. It's the word for sexual intimacy. It's the word that Mary uses when she tells Gabriel, how can this be when he says you're going to have the son of God? And she says, how can this be? I've never known a man. The word she uses there is gnosko, okay? So it's the same. It's very similar to the Hebrew word yada, which is the same thing um, in context. So behold, I never intimately knew you. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Very interesting. This is the word that's used for sexual intimacy. This intimacy doesn't happen in the open. This type of intimacy you don't do out in the open. This, in fact, it's illegal to do out in the open. Salah. This intimacy happens in the secret place. The mask only matters in the open. The fake you that you want people to think is the real you only matters when you're around other people. When you're at home in the secret place, you begin to operate as you really are. Like you don't you don't tell people out in the open that you have a porn addiction. You operate in the porn addiction in the secret place in your room when nobody's watching. Because that's the real you. And again, the real you is not porn addict. The real you is son or daughter of God. But that's the you that you have come into agreement with. And that's the you that he wants to redeem. He doesn't want to to redeem the person that's out in the open telling people, I don't struggle with anything. He wants to redeem the person that is in the secret place, really coming into agreement with a lifestyle that is not what they really are. Okay? Gnosko only happens in the secret place, and the mask only matters out in the open. The secret place is reserved for the uncovered you. This is Jesus saying, I was never exposed to the real uncovered you in intimacy because all you ever brought me was your mask. When he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, by way of the second phrase that he says, and I'm going to explain this, right, and then we'll be done. Well, essentially, what Jesus is saying is, is Jesus is saying, I, I've only ever been brought your mask. The only time you come to me is when you come to me with a mask. What does he say in Matthew 6? He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they pray, love to stand, or excuse me, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Go into your room and pray in secret. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. 
Who is he talking to? The teachers, the, the religious spirit. I never knew you. All you ever brought to me was the religious you, and that's not even you. I never knew who you really were. I was never exposed to, let's say it like that, who you really were. You and I never had intimacy. I wanted intimacy, but you and I never had intimacy. And then he'll say, "Check." I can't wait for this, away from me, you evildoers. Now, the word away is the word apokorio. And it's from apo, which means from or away from or against. And korio, meaning uh, make to make room or space. For example, this is available space. Okay? So the word away means to make available space. Space. Make available space. So away, away is a good translation. But you got to take, what does he do? What is he casting away? He's casting away something that once took up space to make available space to fill it with something else. The words from me, comma, you is just one Greek word, and that Greek word is ergazome, ergazome, and it means to work or to labor. The word evildoer, which I don't like that translation, um, and that's only in the NIV. Most translations say lawlessness, and that's an, I like that. That is a great translation. The word evildoer is anamie, Anamie, which comes from the word a, which means not in this case, and nomos, which means law. A and nomos, which means not law or lawlessness. So he's saying, away or depart that which works or labors in lawlessness or that which isn't or that which was never the law. This is, this, is, this is Jesus separating the chaff from the wheat. I will tell them, I've never been in intimacy with you. Therefore, I'm going to cast away that which kept you and I from intimacy so that we can finally have intimacy, is, is, it, is what he's saying. What kept the religious spirit from intimacy? The mask. What is Jesus casting away when he says depart? The mask. And then he finishes it like this. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. He's saying, 
you who take these words of mine and build your life on them, you're building it on a true and solid foundation. Those of you who reject the words of mine, for whatever reason you've got to reject it, are like those who are building a house with absolutely no foundation. If you looked at both of the houses, you would not see a difference. The difference is what's on the inside parts that you cannot see. Both build houses. Both build houses. The religious spirit builds a house for every single person to see, but neglects the interior root level portion of the house that would actually make the house a house. All they are concerned with is what people see. What they are not concerned with, what people don't see, that will actually give longevity to what the people see. But those who take the word, because what did Jesus just preach a, mess, preach a message over? The heart level, the interior world, the secret place, the identity. Those who hear my words and put them into practice are like those who build their house on a foundation. The first, before they ever build one thing that people can see, they take care of the thing on the inside that people cannot see, the foundation. And that will become permission to build a house. And what does he say? He says, the rain comes down, the streams rise, and the winds blow. And the two houses have different responses to that. The first house stands and is not shaken by the storm. The second house is destroyed by way of the storm. There are, there are a lot of times, I'm going to be very cautious with this, there's a lot of times the Lord will allow us to walk through things just to show us the, just to show us how solid our interior world really is. Let me say it like this. A lot of times the Lord will allow us to walk through things, not to kill us, not to destroy us, but he'll allow us to walk through certain things so that we can see our interior world is actually not what the exterior world says it is. When, when, when things around you begin to come against you, how do you respond? Do you stand like a tree that is planted by living water, Psalm 1, that their uh, leaves never wither, that they bear fruit in every season? Or when things around you start to come against you, do you begin to feel the house crumbling, falling like a house of cards? Both of those responses are signs of interior realities. When things come against you, it doesn't mean you're not phased. It just means you're not shaken. When things come against you, are you completely firm in who you are and what he has said, or do you begin to feel the house falling? That, that right there is a sign 
of how healthy the foundation is. The good news is, is there is an ever-increasing invitation for us to come into the secret place where we day in and day out guard the flame of the interior foundation. The foundation anchors the house. So you'll never have to worry about if the house is going to stand as long as the foundation is healthy. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Authority comes from the word author, and author is an originator. Particularly, this is interesting because Jesus is the word, and he's also the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the author, and he is the word. He is the originator. John 1 says, in him, or through the Passion Translation I love, through his creative expression, all things were made and nothing was made apart from him. Through him, all things were made. Through him, he was the author of all things. Therefore, he is the only one who has the authority to change or edit or redeem all things. Not Adam. Adam wasn't the author of everything. Jesus was, and that is the reason. That is the reason. Adam's effect on humanity was nothing but a prophetic insight into Jesus's true and final effect on all humanity. They were amazed because Jesus taught as one who had authority. When he spoke, their interior world began to vibrate in the authenticity and originality in the words coming from the word. He taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He's doing, John, Matthew's saying two things here. He's saying Jesus taught different than their teachers of the law, and Jesus taught them in a way that was not like their teachers of the law. Not only was he teaching a different way of seeing things, but the way that he was teaching was unlike the way that the teachers of the law taught. The teachers of the law taught by way of a, I was going to say a false authority, but they had some authority in the culture. They taught by way of a man-made authority. Jesus taught by way of true, original, God authority. And that made the difference. That made the difference. So here's how I'm going to finish this today. And I thank you all for hanging out with me. I think I preached a little longer today than I actually did in the service yesterday because I added a few things. But this is, this is good. This is maybe why the Holy Spirit wanted me to do this in the first place, was to add and maybe fill in some holes that were left yesterday. But I, here's how I want to end this, and I'm going to pray over you that are listening to this. I want to end this, and I want to say, you and I are on a journey right now where we are going to find that our thinking is challenged in a lot of places. And if we could have the guts and the faith and the trust to say yes to the revelation from God over the comfortability 
of our way of thinking, we're going to see what no eye has seen and no ear has heard. I was on the way to church yesterday, and uh, I saw a sign that I pass every morning. The interstate is going from two lanes to three lanes from my house to Columbia, and I live in Lexington. And so uh, every day I get in traffic, congested, standstill traffic on the way home and on the way to the church when it goes from three lanes to two lanes or in the, in the way of coming from my house to church, the two lanes before it gets to the three lanes are always congested. Anyway, so I was on my way to church and I saw a sign that I passed a thousand times that said, new traffic pattern, proceed with caution. And the Holy Spirit began to whisper to me and he said, I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to hang out on that thought for a second. For my entire life and for a lot of your entire life, we have been... Um, we haven't been in the mature fullness of the understanding of the Holy Spirit and the Son, but we have been okay with our understanding of the Holy Spirit and Son. We haven't had any issue with how the Holy Spirit moves, and we haven't had any issue with who the Son is. He's kind, He's grace, He's loving, He's uh, sacrificial love, etc. The thing that you and I, if you're like me, the thing that I've struggled with my entire life is the Father. Because I assumed and I was told and I was taught that the way we think about the Father is he's the angry and hateful part of the Godhead. But Jesus came to take on that anger and hate that he had towards us. But he's the one you want to spend forever with. That he was a child killer. That he hated me for everything that I've done. But because of Jesus, he tolerates me. That's what I thought my whole life, and I avoided the Father. When I prayed, I didn't want to pray to the Father. I wanted to pray to Jesus. And that is hermeneutically, theologically, philosophically, all the others, wrong. That doesn't even fit, but that's the narrative I was told. That's the narrative you and I have believed. But what the, what the Lord has done over the past year for us is he has opened up who the Father really is. And do you know what's going to begin to happen? When, when all we believe in and when all we strive, no, no, I don't want to use strive, I want to use thrive. When all we believe in and all we rest in, let's say that, is a right view of the Spirit and a right view of the Son, it stops us in our progress because God is not two, God is three. And we miss the entire picture of who God is unless we have all three in view. So we have preached a gospel that said Jesus is one way and the Father is the other way. The problem is, is when Philip said that, Jesus said, Philip, Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Bill Johnson says, be afraid, or excuse me, he says, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. Damon Thompson says, be afraid of anything that you think about the Father that you cannot find in the Son. It, whatever idea you have of Jesus, you also have to have of the Father and you also have to have of the Spirit. And if you don't, Something is off and something is wrong. If you think God has a piece of his nature that is different and worse, usually, than the Son, then we really need to check ourselves 
and we got to get it fixed. And the only way to get it fixed is not a theological issue. It's a, it's a way of thinking issue. Because most of our gospels are rooted in um, punishment and God being bloodthirsty for those who don't repeat a prayer and all that other stuff. That's, that's what most of our gospels are rooted in. And Yahweh's coming in to root us in a gospel that starts with the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. That starts with God is love. That's what John says. And God is light, and there's not a trace of darkness in him. And do you know what hate and anger is? Jesus just said, if you're angry, then you are under judgment for murder. So we said that God does something that Jesus condemned. We see the God, uh, God the Father, as one thing and Jesus the Son as another thing. And if we're being honest, deep down inside, they contradict each other on a regular basis. And Yahweh is coming in to fix it. He's saying who Jesus revealed is exactly what Father, Son, and Spirit all are like. Paul says it like this, In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily. Dwells bodily. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Who is that? Father, Son, and Spirit. The fullness. So, so what the Lord is doing is He's fixing that third lane. And if you're not careful... Right now, the lane is finished. The, the lane is laid. The concrete's laid. But it's still blocked off because it's not quite finished. There's a few more details they've got to finish before that lane is drivable. <clears throat> and if, if, if you and I aren't careful, we're going to stop with, oh yeah, God the Father is good. Oh yeah, God the Father is to be trusted. We're going to stop right there and we're going to try our best to, to ride that lane before it's ready. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to hit a barricade and crash our cars. Proceed with caution. New traffic pattern. Proceed with caution. The Lord is slow and patient to bring us into the fullness of the knowledge of God. Why? Because if you try to get into things too fast, you're going to get exactly where we are right now. So let the Lord, let's, let, let's commit to let the Lord Finish the job in us. And we go, we're going to walk slow and steady, and we're going to give ourselves fully to the entirety of the message and the understanding and the way of thinking and ultimately the theology, how we view God, that, that we were really originally on a deep down um, true level designed for. So let, let me pray, and then, then I'll be done. Lord, I thank you for everybody listening to this. I thank you for the family that we have here. And I thank you for what you've been doing. Um, this, is, this is not something that I've taken lightly. This is something that I believe has brought me closer and more passionately zealous over what you're doing than I have ever been. And so um, I, I just I honor you for that. I pray over every single person under the sound of my voice. I pray that you would begin to give us dreams and visions and revelations over what it's going to look like for your kingdom to come 
by way of an understanding, or let me say it like this, by way of a right way of thinking, particularly about Father, Son, and Spirit, and even more particularly about the Father. So I love you. I thank you for giving us this, this unveiling of the Sermon on the Mount. And I just pray that this will, this will be permission to go deeper than we have ever gone before. We honor you and love you in your name. Amen. I will see you guys uh, tomorrow night at the, at the time of this recording. So Tuesday night for midweek and then next Sunday for uh, us continuing to go deeper into all this amazing stuff. So I love you. I hope you have a great week. We're praying over you and we'll see you guys soon.